Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi there, we're back again. And my road was closed off when I came up here, and it was kind of a panic to get past a giant machine <laughs> to get here in time to do the radio show. Well, isn't it amazing, Linda, how often the weeks roll by? I mean, it seems to me we do this radio show pretty much every day. It does. It seems like it just rolls around Monday, Monday, Monday. It's just amazing. And we know some of you listeners don't hear it on Monday because I think it reruns twice during the week. But we we enjoy it a lot, and we hope that you do. And I've got a provocative question to ask today, Linda, to, to start off. And it stems from the fact that we spent most of our weekend at the First Lady's first annual parenting and family expo in the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City. And it really was a wonderful program. They had about, what was it, 125 different workshops. They did, 85 presenters. It was amazing. It was. They had a lot of uh, a lot of keynotes and so on. It was really a wonderful program. A lot of work went into it. That the attendance was somewhat disappointing by the general public. And and I was thinking to myself, why is it hard to get parents to come to these? Well, part of the reason may have been that it was downtown and that uh, the parking's a little tough. And it was and a it was beautiful Saturday. Saturday morning when everybody wanted to be out in their gardens and. Yeah. Just- Soccer, bass, baseball, so many issues, but it was really not a greatly attended, and we were sad about that because it was well advertised. So here's my provocative question. One woman came up and she said, you know, I came today, but I almost didn't come. And I said, why were you thinking about not coming? And she said, well, whenever I go to one of these parenting meetings, all that happens is I go home feeling worse. I just go home and I feel guilty. I feel like I don't know anything. I feel like, wow, you know, there's all these experts that have all this advice, and, and I haven't been doing any of the things they recommend, and I'm just a flop as a parent, she said. And so I almost didn't come because I just know I'm going to go home feeling worse about my parenting than I do right now. So here's my question. Is it a good thing that we talk as much as we do about parenting these days and we and we buy parenting books and we have these parenting gurus that try to tell us how to do things and so on? Or is that a bad thing? Another way to ask it would be, you know, a lot of a lot of people say, Well, in my generation, we didn't have any experts and methods and techniques. We just, you know, did what comes naturally and our kids turned out just fine. So the question is, does it really make you a better parent to try to hone your skills and figure out what motivates your child and come up with techniques and methods? Or would we sometimes be better off if we just followed our gut instinct and did whatever we felt like doing? Well, that's a good question because truly there is a lot of guilt. I was just talking to a woman just now who said she really did the very best she could with her kids. In fact, she did joy school. She has eight children. Two were adopted from a Romanian orphanage. And um, she said, you know, I really did the best I could, but one of those children is autistic. I didn't know how to deal with that, although we're still struggling with him. He's 19, and 
and darling boy and such a good boy that she said, I just needed help. I think the answer to your question really is that true. I mean, I don't think our parents had a lot of parenting techniques except get up and work, do your paper route, practice, practice, practice. And, of course, practicing is still going on. Yeah, and discipline your kids, and you know, don't spare the rod. Speaking, maybe the Bible was their their parenting guide, you know. Yeah, I think it kind of was. Um, it so, was in our case so, because uh, you know the quiverful and all that stuff. <laughs> let me let me let me go a little further with my question because I, you know, my first instinct was to say to this woman, "Oh, come on, you know, of course." Of course you need to learn all you can. The more you know, the more you learn, the more you listen to other people's ideas, the more you hone your skills as a parent and a motivator and a disciplinarian and all that, the better you'll get. But but I don't want to give that answer too quickly or too, too with too much flip because um, I do think that there is some validity in following your instincts as a parent. Now, I got to be really careful in saying that because some of our instincts as parents are are clearly <laughs> not very good. I mean, we get angry at our children. We we uh, we're very tempted sometimes to punish them physically, which is basically never a useful thing. And and so and, and you know, I have another friend by the way. You know, who I'm talking about Linda, who says the best thing you can know is that as a parent, your first instinct is almost always wrong. What you've got to do is hold your breath for a minute, count to three, think it over, and then come up with a more reasoned response than what usually comes to mind first. So it's really a complicated issue, but but I do think that this woman had an interesting point that if, if you're a parent who every time you read a parenting book or get some advice or read an article or whatever, you just feel worse and you just feel like you're not measuring up and you're not good enough to be a parent, then that really can be a negative thing. And I think parents need to say to themselves, maybe let me, let me propose sort of three guidelines. Number one, my kids came as who they are. Some kids are much tougher than others, and I should never compare my parenting by how my kids are doing with others because kids start off differently. Right. Number two, number two I would say, um, having said that first one, you say, well, I want to do my best, and I want to learn what I can. I want to read what I can. I want to get as much advice as I can. But then the interesting one is number three, be your own judge. Take your own counsel. Don't swallow every bit of advice you have. For one thing, there's all kinds of advice out there that conflicts with other advice. And and experts are very subjective in the field of parenting. And so the third guideline is ask yourself, does that really ring true to me? Does that really sound like something that would work for my children in my situation, in my household? And if, if you don't feel like it does, just reject it because there's plenty of other advice. In other words, you make the final decisions. Don't let some expert, quote-unquote, tell you how to raise your kids, because the fact is you're the only expert on your kids. Absolutely, and, you know, that's interesting that you would bring that up because last week, you know, our oldest daughter, Saren, and her associate, April Perry, have started a new website called The Power of Moms, 
And you can go to it at powermoms.com, and there are so many good articles of things that you can take it or leave it or be inspired or whatever or reject. But um, April wrote a little article a couple of weeks ago called Your Children Want You. And it's a wonderful, brilliant article on the fact that they don't care about the Pinterest stuff and the Facebook mom and the blog mom and all that stuff. They want you. You, Every mother has a specific gift, and that's what their kids want. They want to just sit back and soak in what it is that their mom can teach them. And the interesting thing was that must have touched a nerve because that article went viral, and they got one million hits. Last week. Isn't that amazing? A million hits, and here we here we're at this big parenting conference. No one's showing up. Maybe that's the answer to our earlier question, Linda. That uh, parents would rather get their advice sometimes in an anonymous form over the internet than they would show up at some conference where where sort of the assumption might seem to them to be one size fits all. Do this, and it'll work for everyone. Maybe it's easier for parents to be critical and say, no, 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 I don't like that idea if they're looking at it online. But, you know, I want to just go even a step further with something you just said, Linda. It's It's not only that your kids want you. Here's a question I would I would really advise every parent to ask. Why did I get this particular child? Right. Or if you're a religious person, why did God send this particular child to me rather than some other parent? And and I think what that will, will lead you to in most cases, whether you're religious or not, will be that there's some reason. Maybe you think of it as a spiritual reason. Maybe you think of it as a genetic reason. But there's some reason that you have the child that you do. And I think that sort of leads you in the direction of, I'm the right parent for this child. I I, I must be. That's why the child came to me. And even though this may be a difficult child or I may not be seeing all the progress I'd like or I still have problems or whatever, just be comforted by the fact that there is some reason that you have that child and no one else could probably do any better than what you're doing with that child. And so it's kind of like a circle back to that same conclusion. You're the expert on your kids. Be open to advice, but don't let anyone tell you they know more about your child than you do. Absolutely. And, and of course, we want to make sure people don't think that we're saying, you know, don't go to seminars and don't go for help because you can figure it out. Because there are a lot of things that people have learned through the ages. I mean, just think about it. Um, depression, ADD, ADHD, all that stuff, uh, uh, diabetes, has become epidemic. And people have figured out how to make things work better with if you have those situations. And so you do need advice. You do need to listen. And, um, I mean, obviously we want people to go to our daughter's website and, and daughter's blog and so on because you do get inspiration. But just keeping well, it in perspective, I'm, just like you're saying, keeping it in perspective that, you yeah. know, I'll, I'll take what works for me, but I really do know that this child was sent to me for some reason and sometimes you're totally befuddled yeah. trying to think of why but yeah. if you keep yeah, on going exactly. you can figure it out exactly and i 
you know, I take your point, Linda. We're not saying to people, hey, don't read, don't read our parenting books. We wrote them because we think there's some good ideas in them. But honestly, if I had a magic wand and I had a wish, I, I would wave it over every parent who reads one of our books, and I would say, I want you to read this, and I hope you find two or three really appropriate ideas that the minute you read them, you know they're going to work for you. But if you have to go through 20 ideas that you don't particularly like, and, and if you say, well, this, this is interesting, but I don't think it would work for my child, that's actually a good thing. That's, that's something I think we as parenting authors would hope for. We would hope, I mean, the worst thing would be someone saying, okay, let's see, I've got to follow every suggestion in this whole book. Number one, you'd drive yourself crazy. Number two, you don't have time. And number three, some of them were not created for your child. Absolutely. It is just so important because guilt is such a big part of parenting, <laughs> as we all know. And, uh, you know, and sometimes you don't feel it until they've gone and somebody messes up on something and saying, what did I do? What did I do? And I think really as long as we're doing the very best we can, that's all we can do. And the kids are who they are. They become who they're going to become. We make a little yeah. difference with the water and the fertilizer on that little seedling and so on and pruning back a little once in a while. But in the end, they are going to be who they are. Absolutely. Now we're going to take a break. And when we come back for the second half, we're going to share with you what we shared at this First Ladies Parenting Conference. And it has to do with what what we think. Again, we're going to caveat this. You have to decide. You're the expert on your kids. We're going to share what we think is the prime objective with preschoolers, what is the prime objective with elementary age kids, and what is the prime objective with teenagers. So we'll be back right after this break. And here we are back again, and uh, I, I thought we had a quite a fun time with our audience, Linda, talking about objectives, because... One thing that's kind of fun about that is you're you're not into all kinds of little, you know, detailed methods. You're basically saying if you have this goal and you work at it every chance you get according to the circumstance you're in and what your situation is, you'll come up with a lot of good methods. And we started off with preschoolers and suggested, as many people who know us know we do, that when you have preschoolers, your goal should be to teach them to have joy and to let them have the joy that's naturally in them rather than trying to rush them into all kinds of early academics. Absolutely. It is so fun. And, you know, when it's a first child and you want them to be, um, you know, confident when they go to school by being able to read and being smart and so on, Sometimes, you know, that, that is important, obviously. They need to know how to write their name, and they need some basic things on colors and shapes and so on. But what we've found is that kids catch up so fast on academics. They if really they feel do. secure personally. I mean, if they feel that they are unique and that there are things that they can do that no one else can do and um, go through those things that are so important for little children, the joy of the earth and the body and the things that are, are there around them to enjoy that childhood, so to speak, yeah, before I, they get to the academics. And I think the only caveat, we, we did suggest that along with trying to teach them joy, and of course we, you know about Joy School and you know joyschools with an S.com, 
and that's the goal with the little preschoolers, bless their hearts. But, but we did make one caveat to that, and that is we think preschoolers can become very involved and very active in two things that become permanent parts of your family. One is family laws, little simple laws where they begin to get a clear idea of where the boundaries are. And the other one, of course, is family traditions and rituals that, that really do get started early with a young child and and give that child from the time they're preschoolers a sense of identity. I am part of this family. We do things in this particular way. This is our tradition. This is our ritual. Those two things, you, you can't start them too early. I mean, I guess I guess kids have to be able to communicate a little bit to understand what the laws are and what the and what the traditions are, but you keep them simple, you enshrine them, you make them important in your family, and, and that's really probably the most important thing to do with preschoolers. That and just have fun. Although, you know, remembering that, I remember the day when Noah flushed a cassette tape down the toilet in the upstairs bathroom. The toilet ran over. I ran downstairs and found water leaking into the bathroom downstairs. At the same time, I heard shrieks of joy in the storage room and went in there and found that that two other preschoolers of ours had found 50 pounds of wheat and they were playing singing in the rain and just throwing (laughs) that wheat up, you know. And, you know, the first reaction is, Oh, my gosh, I'll never get this cleaned up. What are you thinking? But the second reaction was to laugh hysterically. I mean, probably crazy hysterically (laughs) because it was so crazy. But, you know, there are days like that when you look back on them and realize how much fun you're having. At the moment, it may not seem too fun. But, you know, having fun with those little preschoolers when they're so precious, so little, and so innocent and ready to learn about the world is just crucial. Well, and believe us, and you know this, most of you older parents listening, that those preschool years go by so fast, and they're into school, they're into academics, and they're to the time when you need to start teaching them responsibility. So why rush it? Why not say until you turn five and go to school, we are going to help you be a joyful, happy kid, and things we want you to learn are the social and emotional joys. By the way, kindergarten teachers continue to tell us, I mean, this is almost a daily occurrence, I can't, whenever we see a kindergarten teacher, say, oh, I love those kids that come out of joy school. They don't know how to read, and maybe they're not as quick academically as some of the kids that have already been going to academic preschool for two years, but they're happy, they're well-adjusted, and like you said, Linda, they catch up within a year, and and they've had a childhood, and they're socially ready for school. That's the most important thing with preschool. Well, I do have to add, though, Richard, that um, we have not totally been able to convince our children. They all have done joy school, but they all have children going to school knowing how to read. (laughs) <laughs> Almost all of them have spent some time with them because it, that yeah. does give you also a certain amount of confidence. Right. Um, they're not working on square roots, but they are. We, we have a little five-year-old grandchild right now who has a syndrome, and and her mom feels it's so important that she feels like she's online once she starts school. And so that's important, too. But we're just saying the most important thing for those little kids is to remember that they're just kids, and they only have a teeny tiny minute as a child. But then, 
there is a very natural transition when they get to be six or seven and they're they're starting to feel flattered by responsibility and they're starting to want to be treated with a little more deference by adults and with a little more respect by adults and with a little more equality by adults. And that's the time we think eight is the magical age for transitioning into really heavy, heavy is the wrong word, but serious responsibilities for certain things, including their own money, that they can earn rather than get as an allowance or a handout, buying a lot of their own things rather than you buying them for them, and being responsible for their own goals and their own values and and beginning to understand that they own their own lives. And, of course, we've talked many times, you've heard us before if you've listened about the power of ownership with children. The point being it's these elementary-age kids where that becomes the goal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I actually talk to somebody at the conference that listens to us every week on this station. <laughs> it was so exciting. I said, really, there are people out there awesome. But it really was fun to talk with them about this transition time. And, and she was asking about these elementary age kids because she said, you don't want to give them too much responsibility even when they're that age, which is true. I mean, you don't want them to make to make them feel like they're raising the family or that they're earning money for the household food or whatever. But, you know, you do. It is really a wonderful time when they still think that you know something and that they are just so uh, imaginative and so on and creative in thinking of ways to be more responsible. They'll go along with pretty much whatever you ask them to do. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And then, of course, comes this remarkable time called the teenage years. And I have to say, I love teenagers. I have to say that I am so glad I said that the other night when we were um, introducing the the governor and, and the first lady because they had a group that came on at the end of uh, the, that program that night that was absolutely fabulous. It was how many kids do you think that was? 20 kids or something? In that band? Yeah. I think there were uh, 25 kids in a, in a jazz band that sounded like they... It sounded like Duke Ellington. Oh, or Glenn Miller. or so. It was, except with a modern upbeat. I mean, they had singers that were out of this world, all ages 13 to 18, except for one little 12-year-old drummer that took the house by storm, standing ovation. He was so <laughs> awesome. He was really good. But that, that makes the point, Linda, that teenagers... Uh, that, that's the attitude you want to have. Just, you expressed it beautifully, Linda. If you're, the, if you've got teenagers coming up, the, the most, the most important thing is to anticipate those teen years with relish and with joy, and not with fear and trepidation. Because, of course, you're going to have some issues, and of course, teens are, are at a time when they're trying to figure out who they are, and they're going to have a, hormones going around and so on. But, but if you, if you as a parent say, wow. This is what I've worked for. I've, I've been raising this child for this moment. Now they're becoming capable of doing adult things, and the teen years is a wonderful time. The biggest problem they have across the board, everywhere we've been in the world, the biggest single problem teenagers have, or the root problem of whatever their symptoms are, is usually that they're extremely self-centered. They, they see the world in terms of 
how does this affect me and should I be with this person and will this make me more popular? And blah, how blah, do blah. I look? And how do I look? It's, it's like they're looking into mirrors all the time. But quickly, back to your point, Linda, then they get a passion for something like these kids in this jazz band or other things that they find interesting. And, and that is one of the things that helps them escape from what uh, C.S. Lewis called the dungeon of self. And you get you get them into something they love, and you get them doing service for other people. You get them looking through windows instead of into mirrors, and then you've got a happy teenager. You know, it is so fun. I, I really do have to say I love teenagers. They are so much fun because suddenly you, I mean, you can talk straight across to them, not every day in every way, because all of ours took their little dips and so on, and emotional. We had four girls who, you know, it's either bright smiles or floods of tears. And, you know, there's, and, and the guys are physical and, and a lot of stuff happens, uh, especially when you have a lot of siblings together. But actually, these teenagers are so interesting because they are just starting to discover the world and, and who they really are. And uh, so many parents have said, oh, it's just going to be so horrible because they're not going to like us anymore and they're not going to want to do things with us. And we didn't really feel that much. I mean, obviously they have a lot of activities that they need to be at, so they, they can't be with you as much as a family. But, but they were totally willing to be with us on family outings and loved going on family trips. And now, that doesn't apply to every child. In every case, I have to always give the caveat that, you know, there are some really difficult teenagers and touche to you parents that are dealing with them. But by and large, teenagers are a riot. <laughs> A riot is a good word for it. But, but let me just review because, again, I think I really believe that sometimes what parents need to do is pull back from all the minutia and all of the advice and all of the methods for parenting and everything and say, wait, what are my goals? What are my goals? What am I really trying to do? And sometimes that really helps. And, and again, we want to make a case for with the, with the preschoolers, the goal is joy. Just help them be happy, help them have a great childhood, Help them understand things, but use joy as your method. Show them how fun it is to have a little goal. Show them how fun it is to look at the world and enjoy nature and learn from them because they will teach you a lot of joy. So have that as your goal for your preschoolers. Then have responsibility as your goal for the elementary kids and have sensitivity or charity, depending on whether you want a secular word or a religious word, as your goal for your teenagers because that will cause you to help them find passions, to get them outside themselves, to do more service, and all these things that work. And if you, if you as a parent, especially if you're a two-parent family, if you sit down once in a while together and say, how are we doing with our goal for our preschoolers? How are we doing with our goal for our elementary age? I think that's a kind of a thinking that's very positive, and it gets away from what we talked about in the front end of this show of, oh, I'm so worried and I'm guilty and I shouldn't have done this and I should have done that. Just get past all that and say, what am I trying to do now and in the future with this child? And as you do, you're going to feel better and better and better about your parenting. We wish you the very best and we thank you for being part of the greatest job in the world, that of a parent. See you next week.